0: All right. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's doing really well, bringing you a new podcast that's going to focus on autism and teaching autism in PE settings. So with that, um, I think I'm going to do a whole series right now, and I have one set up with visual impairments and we're gonna look at disability specifics so um we have a whole line set up for you and this is broken up into two sets this first set is with dr sean healy from the university of humboldt in california Melissa Bittner, one of my colleagues, former guests. She is about to be a doctor in about two weeks time and she's currently at Texas Women's University and traveling very soon to California State University, Long Beach. And we also, lastly but not least, is we have Dr. Martin Block from the University of Virginia and he is also the author and editor of A Teacher's Guide to Adapted Physical Education, Including Students with Disabilities in Sports and Recreation, which is a great textbook on t- teaching students with disabilities in a PE setting. With that, we're going to get right into this. So today I'm uh, really excited. My, I have a blog and a podcast that go together trying to promote our field. Today the blog got, uh, I've hit over 50,000 views on the blog, so I'm really happy with that. Uh, and that links to the podcast. Really excited. We have Dr. Uh, Sean Healy here. We have Dr. Marty Block, and we also have just about Dr. Melissa Bittner, right? Melissa, you're about, what, two weeks away, hopefully?
1: Correct. Yes, we'll
0: defend June 7th. Awesome. Well, we're here today, and we're here to talk about uh, maybe somewhat of a popular topic as of right now about Uh, teaching students with autism in a PE setting. And in past podcasts, you know, I've overviewed some of these things in different ways, Um, but this is one that seems to come up a lot because uh, it seems to be something that a lot of PE teachers deal with, general and adapted. So my first question that I have for you all is... You know, what is autism? Can someone define it for me and maybe not just in CDC terms, but in other terms and How is that unique from other disabilities? Okay, so I'm, I'm happy to start. Well, I suppose uh, I, I will start
2: by talking about the, the, um, the DSM-5 definition Which uses two categories, two broad categories to define autism. The first being uh, social communication and social interaction and within that, there are three components. And then the other is a behavioral category, Category B, which they talk about restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities. So within those, there are various um, characteristics that would result in a child being diagnosed. But it's a bit simplistic to just talk about the DSM-5 because what really adds to the complexity of children with autism is all those secondary conditions that go along with Um, those DSM-5 characteristics where we're talking about motor deficits which I'm sure we'll talk about later. We're talking about some health conditions, asthma, epilepsy, things like migraines are far more prevalent amongst our children with autism. We also have some psychiatric conditions which are more prevalent such as OCD, ADHD, anxiety disorders are very common. And then we also have some cognitive issues with some uh, children with autism, going alongside the diagnosis of autism with some children with autism. So as you can see, it's a very kind of complex package. So that's why we talk about every child with autism being very unique.
1: I, I agree with a few more things. You know, with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, uh, there's different levels now. So you won't hear about Asperger's or, or or, or RETS, instead you'd have level 1, meaning requiring support, level 2, requiring substantial support, and then level 3, requiring extreme support at all times. Uh, a few other things that it needs to manifest prior to 36 months of age, and interesting enough, it's five times more prevalent in males. And about 1 in 68 children are diagnosed
0: with autism spectrum disorder. So you just talked about that level 1, 2, and 3. And I don't know how familiar people are are with those terms just yet. Um, I think that, you know, how long has it been since those terms started coming out? Level 1, 2, and 3?
2: It was like right, May 2015, 2014.
0: Okay. And so then... They changed from all these, from your RETS and from uh, PDD. Um, and so with that, though, those changes, uh, how do you all feel about those changes? Are they helpful? Or are they helpful for practitioners? Who are they helpful for?
2: So there's quite a lot of controversy in the field about that. Um, with autism spectrum disorders, previously an umbrella term for those other disorders, as you mentioned. I know it has been... Um, Collapsed into two categories resu- um, with characteristics that might result in a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, now a singular diagnosis. Um, there was many motivations for doing this, and one was because it was often quite difficult to differentiate between some of those sub diagnoses. However, a lot of parents and a lot of individuals with autism, or especially adults with Asperger syndrome, for, for example, they don't all feel, don't, they don't all support this change in the diagnostic criteria. Um, but I, th- I think as a practitioner, and I think many practitioners, um, they find the talk of a singular diagnosis with those levels that Melissa spoke about to be a bit more um, meaningful. I, I would say from a practitioner standpoint, um, the specific
3: label of pervasive developmental disorder, or Asperger's, or autism, or any of those, the things they had before in the DSM. As a practitioner, I don't think that would make a difference. I know I have a child who's on the spectrum. Tell me what I need to know about the child. Um, I think the three levels is a good start. They're very broadly defined, uh, and it, I think it would be hard, again, for a practitioner to come up with, is this a level one, two, or three, or even if a special ed teacher said, I'm bringing down a child with autism is level two, that has no meaning to me. What I need to know is what are the child's social skills, what are the child's communication skills, both expressive, can he say anything to me, Uh, or does he hit out when he wants something, does he understand what I say, Um, what are some of his behavioral types of things. So I think from a practitioner standpoint, the the discussion and the new DSM isn't as important as, what do I do with John, who's in my class right now with another 30 children. Dr. Blocks right on it. That's what the
1: spectrum is all about. It, it's a wide range of spectrum, and each are individuals. And kind of the famous quote that many like to say when working with someone with autism by Dr. Uh, Stephen Shore is, once you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. <laughs> and each are so individual in their needs. And that's where you know we as researchers, our practitioners, have to make sure that we're uh, accommodating for that.
0: Let's go then um, maybe... Back a little bit to, I think, what Sean was saying at the very beginning when I asked him to, to give some science-y definitions of autism. Uh, with that, um, we talked about some motor delays, uh, sensory processing disorder, um, all those things. Uh, what So let's talk from a PE standpoint. What type of motor delays and sensory disorder things uh, should I be seeing, um, which are typical in maybe some of the higher-functioning children with autism. I'm happy to start with that. I think uh, from my experience and from the literature, it's it's not going to be something... Well, I think it's the, those culturally popular
3: skills that most children get from playing with peers, from learning in PE, from playing with their parents. And I'm thinking of things like a nice throwing pattern a catching pattern kicking because i played soccer these kids tend to miss out on those opportunities because of their social and behavioral challenges so they're not playing little league soccer they're not playing little league baseball so you're not going to see a great throwing pattern you're not going to see a great kicking pattern they're not really motivated to throw really hard or to kick really hard and if you're not motivated to do that the the really pretty throwing pattern uh, with the opposition step and things are just not going to fall out. So, I think one of the issues is what it's kind of a little bit of a, uh, I guess a paradox is that, again, from my experience, these kids actually have pretty good motor skills. They can run and skip, they can climb trees, they can ride bikes. But when you ask them to do things in a PE setting, like throwing and catching, they really have a hard time with that. And then their social and behavioral challenges and understanding directions make them look even more delayed. So in other words, if we're doing, say, get a partner and and, and practice your throwing and catching, the child won't understand the directions, isn't interested in playing with a partner, doesn't understand or is motivated to throw and catch using a a good pattern. And so the child looks really way more delayed than
0: I think perhaps they are. And I'll add to that about the, the sensory processing
2: issues that you spoke about, Scott. So in PE, it's a very sensory stimulating setting. Um, you talk about loud noises. You're talking about um, you're talking about it can be a very physical environment. So there are definitely um, sensitivity issues that are going to appear for uh, physical education teachers. For example, there's going to be hypo or hypersensitivity, whereby the child is under or over responsive to various uh, sensory input. It could be auditory. We're talking about maybe loud whistles in the gym, for example. We're talking about our children cheering. They could all be uh, very uh, upsetting for some children who are hypersensitive uh, to these sounds. Also, some of the lights in the gymnasium can be tough for some of these kids. You may have them wear like a peaked hat can be helpful. Some of them are going to wear earmuffs, for example, to lessen that uh, auditory input. But I think what might be most challenging for us uh, physical education teachers is the, 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 the tactile sensory issues that they, these children may have. Whereby they are either hyper or hyposensitive to touch. You might notice some of these children hold a ball, for example, with just their fingertips. Um, they might be the children who don't respond um, get really agitated if you try and give them physical guidance. These children might be experiencing some tactile defensiveness. And closely related to that, many children with autism will also have proprioceptive. Um, Again, either hyper or sensitivity, which is going to affect their uh, fine motor skills. And finally, um, a lot of these children will also have vestibular issues. And this could be um, expressed in two ways. Whereby they may really seek out um, uh, stimulation of their uh, vestibular system in their inner ear. You might see these children spinning around, for example, in your PE classes. You're trying to give instruction. Or maybe these are the children who are over, are, sorry, under-responsive within their vestibular system. These are the children who are going to love sitting on a gym ball and bouncing up and down. or these are going to be the children who, um, yeah, who who who, 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 might, who might like to rock back and forth, for example? They're trying to stimulate their vestibular system. So those sensory issues they can really conflict with some of the demands in PE. So again, as Dr. Block said, it's all about understanding your child, understanding any any sensory processing issues they may have, and then try to work
0: with it. So, so with that, with the sensory processing disorders, you know, and I, my experience is when working with kids with autism or sensory processing disorders is that it takes a lot of time to figure out um, some of those, you know, pieces of what they need and what is what they don't want uh is there some ways as practitioners that I, you know it sometimes takes weeks months um years to figure some of those things out with some of our kids with autism is there any ways that we can try to streamline that and is there any assessments or tools or anything like that with sensory processing disorder that we can try to move that along so we can better identify those things faster okay so um what I would typically do in our
2: programs here is at the start when you bring in your child with autism, I'm thinking of one boy especially recently who joined our program, a seven-year-old boy, and we start with giving him an opportunity for some free play and actually through that we kind of quickly identified the, um, the sensory issues that that boy had because we were aware that he potentially had some, we put in a, an, an environment with a lot of different types of equipment. This boy, for example, very quickly started jumping up in our our dome cones. And again, we kind of quickly found out that that was trying to stimulate his vestibular system. We put him on trampolines later, we put him on large gym balls, and we kind of quickly um, realized that that's that's what his behaviors were trying to achieve. And then we integrated that into our program, whereby once that boy, he completed a station on some fundamental uh, motor skills, his reward was bouncing on the gym ball again giving him that response that he uh, so desired so I think just by giving them the opportunity to, um, to, 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 uh, to uh, the opportunity for us to observe them in the environment observe how they interact with equipment pieces, I think actually um, you can identify potential sensory issues uh, quite quickly You just in
0: that informal setting all right Um, I'm going to go back to talking about that motor delay piece again now, too, uh, which I think Dr. Block uh, answered a moment ago. So with this, and this is a topic that has come up, I don't know, maybe in half the episodes I've done now um, about um, eligibility for APE services. So and I've had some different opinions on here, but I want to hear maybe your rationale um, on if I have a student with autism who has, you know, apparent social and communication delays, but no motor delays, Um, can he be eligible for AP services? And I want to open that up because I've had a lot of different thoughts on that.
3: I'll I'll take a stab at that. In our school district, the answer would be no. Um, If it's purely behavioral and social, then, uh, and if the child is having difficulty in general physical education. We would recommend the teacher assistant accompany the child. Um, uh, one of the things I kind of always kind of think about is, okay, if the child qualifies and we go in and pull them out and work with them one-on-one, what will we work on? And if they have no motor delays or fitness delays, then we really wouldn't work on anything. So uh, in those cases, I think it's more of uh, uh, impetus for the special education teacher to provide a teacher assistant to accompany the child and help the child be successful and work with the physical educator.
1: Yeah, this one is a hot topic. But to to play the other side of the fence, some might say yes because though the student may not have motor delays, they might have the sensory needs, health issues, or health-related fitness needs. And obviously, when we assess, we need to look at the child like in the entirety of their environment. So. You know this might mean the teacher might have to do some modifications or equipment or environment to help that child be safe and successful so that's what the other side of the argument might look like yes well when I talk about uh, qualification for AP services I often think of those two words that Melissa said about safe and successful
2: and um, if the child and often those two go very closely together of course but if the child is maybe in a danger to uh, other children or himself in physical education, for example. Then there could be um, individualized services could be provided. For example, uh, I did work with a boy who often expressed himself in a kind of an aggressive way with equipment pieces, for example. And this boy could potentially qualify for ABE services. The one, the one caveat that we've run into are
3: children who don't go down to physical education at all so we've had some sean talked about the sensory issues the gym is just too loud there are too many children it's just overwhelming so we've had children who and from my assessment really don't have a motor delay or significant motor delay but the the teachers can't get him down to the gym and so he's getting no services at all so in those cases we would provide services and try to work on things and ease them back into the gym setting, hopefully. But, but that would be, we, we have had
0: those occasions as well. So I, I have a question on that sensory processing disorder, maybe just to Dr. Block. Um, how, how would you feel if you did have a kid that, you know, I don't know if this would be a realistic scenario, but um, they don't have any motor delays, but they have very apparent sensory processing disorder issues going on. But I don't know if that would be realistic or not because most people with S- significant um, sensory processing disorder would probably have some motor delays with it but would they be eligible?
3: Well we have we have some boys and Sean talked about the earmuffs those um, those noise reducing headphones we have children go to regular PE wearing those noise reducing headphones and there's a teacher assistant with them and because of their tactile sensitivity issues um, sometimes they are kept a little bit away from their peers or like Sean said, they can get aggressive when they get too close to peers. So there's a teacher assistant with them, but they they, they make it through physical education and they seem to be benefiting at their level. And so still, there's no need for an adapted physical educator to intervene in those situations. Um, I mean that that's that's kind of how I look at that.
0: I think that's that sounds very appropriate, and it sounds to me that's somewhat like um, my bachelor's. I got a bachelor's in special education and then I went for my master's in APE. and That sounds like a lot more of a special ed type of thing where you don't want to intervene unless all other possibilities have been, have been tried because we are somewhat taking away from that general ed experience.
3: Yeah, the, other, the other thing I think that you're kind of alluding to are accommodations versus having a child qualify and receiving goals and objectives.
0: And I think a lot of children with autism are under the realm of they need
3: accommodations, but not necessarily a unique IEP.
0: Absolutely. And that's just good teaching. Yeah. So with that, so kids with autism that are on an IEP, maybe kids that are not on an IEP, uh, what is effective PE programming going to provide to them that they might not be getting it otherwise?
3: Well, my, my personal favorite thing that I've seen very effective is using visual supports. These are things like visual schedules and countdown strips to help the child know how many more they have to do when they're finished, um, some type of a task organizer or video modeling to know what I'm supposed to do. So again, if you can imagine a child with autism coming down to physical education, and, and it's almost like they don't understand English, that their um, communication skills are such a deficit. So. They don't understand the verbal directions. They may not even understand demonstrations. So they're very confused, and confusion leads to anxiety, and anxiety can lead to unwanted behaviors. So a visual schedule that tells the child, we do this first, then we do this, then we do this, and then within that, here's how you do this activity. So you're going to go to a station. That's our first activity, and it's a throwing station. When I go to that station, I see some, some pictures of throwing, and there's a box with a set number of balls, and I know when all the balls are empty from the box, I know I've finished that activity. Those types of visuals, in, in my experience, really help keep the child calm, less anxious, focused, and, and much more successful. Some, uh, you know, I would also
1: encourage practitioners to look into other evidence-based practices, which that means just practices that are supported by research. Dr. Block obviously mentioned the visual supports. I think you mentioned the video modeling as well. A few others would be social stories. And a social story is really going to help that child with autism deal with a social situation. Uh, you know, whether it's taking turns or entering a new environment. Uh, so that can be a very beneficial teaching strategy as well. Um, others look into technology aid and instruction. Uh, so maybe some using some iPad applications or projecting something up on the wall for the student to follow. uh, A few apps uh, that I I know that are coming out specifically geared towards individuals with autism. Uh, Exercise Buddy uh, uses a model that has autism to demonstrate physical activities. And also, this summer, there's going to be an app, uh, Athletes with Autism, uh, that Dr. Dillon is putting out there uh, that should be available this summer, and Athletes with Autism we will have some social stories, it will also have some video modeling, and also include some visual schedules, and specifically, again, designed for individuals with autism. And I guess to further on that, a, a way that you can find some of these evidence-based practices if practitioners check out the National Professional Development Center uh, on ASD, and another good source is the National Autism Center Standards Report. There are a few places that you can find some evidence-based practices, and it's extremely important to be using evidence-based practices uh, with your students because the Every Student Succeeds Act that was recently passed uh, here last December uh, mentions EBPs, evidence-based practices, about 90 different times. So it's going to be very important going into the future uh, in IEP meetings, etc., cetera, that you're talking about what uh, EBPs that you are using uh, with students.
0: Something I, I, you know, and Melissa and I have actually done some, you know, uh, we got an article that's going into Palester right now on that, as well as we've done some systematic review on autism and kind of exercise and EBPs and all those things. Um, but with that, I, something that I find is that from a practitioner standpoint, and, and I, I'm saying this kind of as a discussion point, but if, I, I feel like just to say evidence-based practices or just to say things like video modeling, um, I feel like that's somewhat easy to do. But I, I feel like the evidence-based practices need to be purposeful and they, they have to you have to have a, a reason that you're doing it for a certain individual rather than just kind of placing them in sometimes. And that's just something that I've just seen from practitioners maybe talking to them and things like that is they'll name drop those things rather than really know what they mean or um, they're doing it for a certain purpose rather they just know that this is maybe quote unquote good teaching and so because there's I mean how many evidence-based practices are there for autism about 20, 30, something like that?
1: Depending on the source, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so is it important that we are selecting the right ones for the right child as well, or for the right situations. Absolutely. Uh, I can share a little bit of
1: that story that I dealt with uh, with my dissertation. We were uh, using picture task cards and part of our inclusion criteria. Uh, We did a recognition assessment with, at the time we were using three to five year olds, and out of the four participants that we initially recruited, three of the four couldn't uh, identify the pictures that we were using with them. So that's a, a big issue. Why are we showing all these children different pictures if they don't know what they are? So I think that's important as well. That It's not a blanket approach. It really needs to be individualized uh, for the, the student that you are working with. And it's not a one-size-fits-all fix.
0: Because if I'm – because I have autism does not mean that I'm – and I'm not – it's a great strategy. It p- should be used, but it does not mean that I am naturally a visual learner. Correct. Right. And so I just, I don't know, I just sometimes I, I hear those things and I want to make sure that people know that too, that they need to be still used individually.
1: With that, it's still okay, like if, you know, maybe they're included in a general physical education class, it's still okay to use a global visual schedule with you know, all the students in the class. It's just kind of good teaching practice to say, for warm-up, we are going to, you know, do this exercise for our activity this will be next and then finally we'll end with you know maybe some cool down yoga that's good teaching and that's okay to use some of those things but you shouldn't throw everything at a student with autism you really need to figure out what their particular um, needs are and I I often defer to the special ed teacher and parents Um, they work with the child much
3: more than we have as physical educators and so I would go down to the special ed teacher and say, what, what's effective? What works for this particular child? And maybe even talk to the parent. You know, he's coming to PE. What have you found to be effective and, and really rely on other people's uh, help?
1: Well, in addition to that, if you're using some of those visual supports, they should be seeing those same supports in the classroom, and they should be seeing those same supports at home. That, that really helps to have that collaboration with everybody it's not just in your gymnasium that those supports are happening
0: all right everyone that is the podcast for the day uh we will have a new one out with the same people on autism talking more about bullying um, about inappropriate behaviors and some of their current research that's going on so stay tuned and thanks for listening